to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. Many new ideas from scientific collaborations to expanding voting rights were developed in intimate networks that allowed a small group to communicate privately and to talk through their ideas before they broadcast them widely. In his new book, The Quiet Before on the unexpected origins of radical ideas, Gal Beckerman addresses a wide range of topics that benefited from being developed in small groups, from 17th century astronomy in France to the Samizdat movement that was used to evade official Soviet censorship to email chains about public health implications during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. He argues that these types of ideas don't spread as efficiently when using today's social media. His book is published by Crown Publishing, Penguin Random House, and I'm very pleased that it brings Gal Beckerman to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Leonard. Oh, my pleasure. This is fascinating stuff. You begin your book in Aix-en-Provence in 1635 with natural philosopher and astronomer Nicolas-Claude Fabry de Piresque. Um, why there? Was he doing something that would might have been considered dangerous at the time? Oh yes, uh, he was. He was carrying out science or proto science, uh, as we probably see it now. You know, this there were networks of individuals spread throughout Europe in the you know starting in the 17th century, maybe a little bit before that, who were beginning to have a different relationship to nature. They weren't just accepting the doctrines of the church about, you know, where the earth was in relation to to the rest of the universe, for example, and were starting to carry out their own experiments to figure out what where truth actually lie. Um, and they couldn't really do this in a big public way. Uh, so they used letters. They used letters to connect with each other. There is famously what became known as the Republic of Letters, which was a, a collection of a few hundred individuals spread out throughout Europe who were exchanging data, uh, sharing theories, arguing with one another, and kind of b building to new knowledge together. So was regular postal service as significant as the printing press as a means of sharing knowledge and disseminating ideas? It was different. You know, I, I say in the book, you know, we all think about the printing press as being the great revolution of the period in that it allowed uh, ideas to disseminate far and wide. But, you know, it, it, we're talking about with the printing press, we're talking about pamphlets and books, you know, which are you know, one person's idea getting out into the world. The post, which became a lot more efficient, uh, a lot quicker, uh, was was it was another sort of revolution that we don't think about. And the upshot of it was that it allowed people to to share ideas, to build these sorts of, of intellectual communities where you could go back and forth over time and, and build and build the sort of awareness that the, was happening inside the public Republic of Letters. So how long did it take for a letter to get from X to other cities in 17th century Europe? Also Syria and Quebec? Yeah. <laughs> well, that took a bit longer. But, you know, there were regular routes going from, say, X to Rome and to Paris, uh, which could take a week or two uh, to get there. And, um, and Perasque, who's the center of this chapter and was really a hub, kind of a center of this very, very wide network. Uh, he was writing, you know, eight to nine letters a day in Latin, Italian, French, German uh, to his contacts. Uh, long, long 10, letters. 10,000 you know, of his letters survive. That's a lot. That's right. That's right. You know, so I, I you know, he was existing concurrently with Galileo, who was a friend of his and a mentor. And was know, that Galileo dangerous? Got, 
it was it was dangerous in a way once Galileo got in trouble. And in a, in a, in a famous episode, uh, he actually argued with the church to be more lenient uh, with with Galileo, with the Inquisition to be more lenient with Galileo and allow him to uh, to, to to do his house arrests somewhere else. But um, but you know, he was carrying out work that was no less important than what Galileo was doing. He was just doing it in this quiet way uh, through letters. On the other hand, uh, he had a wide range of people. Uh, most of the people he's writing to are university scholars, but wasn't he also friends with Peter Paul Rubens, the, the great yeah. painter? Yeah, they had they had one of their projects together. I mean, the, the thing that's interesting about this period and these individuals, they were true polymaths. I mean, they were interested in so many different things. And with Rubens, uh, Peresk had a they were building a, a collection of of gems and minerals that they were that they were gathering. And you know, they, their their interests went from you know trying to from astro- astronomy to geology. Uh, they really felt like they had to sort of start from scratch in terms of building uh, building up awareness of the natural world. So would you say that his correspondence formed a collaborative venture that resembled the editorial board of a scientific journal? I do say that. <laughs> I do. I think that it, I think I it's the idea. Much, I do. I think it's very much <laughs> what it was like if we have to think of a modern day analogy. They, they were testing out their ideas with each other. And uh, there is such value I found, you know, just to speak to the bigger argument of the book, there was such value in being able to have a community of people with which they could um, share and 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 debate and interact and and you know, Peresque was interesting because he he understood that you know knowledge isn't just built you know from one person sitting at a desk uh, writing uh, something. He, he, he knew that it, it came from the friction. It came from the friction of minds in conversation. And letters really provided the opportunity to, to, to achieve that. And one of the things they did was to uh, calculate longitude. Uh, why is yeah. longitude much harder to calculate than latitude? And why is that something, was that considered a dangerous venture at the time? Well, so the, first of all, la- so latitude you can you can calculate by by looking at the height of the midday mm-hmm. sun, right? So, the, so you could you could do it back then fairly easily. Longitude was another matter because you the only real way to to calculate it was to have many different people in different geographic locations, all observing the same celestial phenomena. Uh, in this case, they chose a an eclipse, a, a, a lunar eclipse, and marking. Uh, what time they saw it at, and then the difference in time would would allow you to calculate longitude. This and it's it, and this is the centerpiece of the chapter on Piresque. And on the face of it, that wouldn't seem like such a trivial sort of thing to do. To, he he ultimately wanted to figure out longitude so he could he could get at the correct size of the Mediterranean Sea. He had a sense, and sailors had a sense that it was wrongly calculated on on the maps they were using, which were hundreds and hundreds of years old. What was subversive about it was that they were on their own figuring out a, a correct, um, you know, translation of, of of nature. Of they were they were not just trusting the church's doctrine. Uh, they were actually going out on their own in a collaborative way and figuring it out. Beginning and of so, the scientific revolution, in a sense. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is absolutely where that thinking begins. And what was interesting to me in that case about the letters is in order for Perez to carry out this experiment, he needed these individuals spread out all over the world. And most of them were missionaries and or, or you know, kind of merchants who didn't really have scientific, who weren't scientifically minded in the way that the members of the Republic of Letters were. So through the letters, through this sort of patient um, you know, accumulation, you know, of, of, of correspondence, he had to sort of talk them into being okay with participating in this, first of all. Second of all, he had to teach them how to think and act like scientists. How do you properly observe? How do you make sure that, you know, nothing is getting in the way of your, uh, of your sample, you know? <laughs> how, uh, how do you hold your body correctly in order to, to look up at the sky and and, and note what he wanted people to note about, about the eclipse they were observing. It was a, a kind of a, a, a recruitment in a way, a recruitment of the mind, you know, to get them to, to have a different sort of relationship to nature. Now, uh, you cover a wide range of, yeah. uh, of subjects throughout history, but um, let's jump forward to uh, a contemporary example of shared scientific inquiry. Didn't that happen when news, the news first started to emerge in the early in early 2020 about uh, the coronavirus and, and yes. the crisis that yeah. it was creating. Why did a group of public health and national security experts begin an email chain, mm-hmm. which they called Red Dawn after yeah, the movie? They called, it, they called it Red Dawn after the, the 80s movie, uh, you know, in which, in which a group of high school students take on yeah. so, Soviet Patrick invasion. Swayze and Charlie Sheen. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, I, I, th- I don't. I think maybe if they knew how public it would eventually be, they might not have named it Red Dawn because it was um, a little bit more jokey than they probably intended. But, but the truth is, they felt like they felt to themselves like a kind of a quiet underground resistance. This was a group of uh, professionals, uh, epidemiologists, as you say, uh, and public health officials who were outside of outside of power. They they didn't have the ear of the CDC or of the White House. And immediately, I mean, we're, we're talking before uh, coronavirus actually hit the pandemic, hit the United States. So when it was still uh, mostly confined to China and there was some, you know, there was some sense that it wouldn't be confined just to China. And they immediately began to feel that, that the sort of measures that the government was taking and the way that it was being understood, the kind of, you know, plug your ears uh, attitude that they felt they were seeing was, was really a mistake and they were worried about it. And so their best way to communicate with each other was through these sort of private email chains where they began to do the work they felt that nobody else was doing. And what you know, kinds they, they of work were, of information and speculations were they communicating with each other? So, so among among the group was was one woman, Eva Lee, who's probably the, the best known kind of scientific modeler in the country, uh, based down in Georgia Tech, and she started creating very sophisticated models to understand how the pandemic, based on the limited knowledge they had, how the pandemic would would spread and who it would affect first, and what type of quarantining made sense and what type of preventative measures would be smartest to implement first and and then they you know they looked back at the you know the earlier the spanish flu and tried to understand uh, what the spread was there and how it would you know how it would match that or be greater than that or you know it it was it was this sort of exercise of imagining um the worst case scenarios uh so that they could so that there could be a certain level of preparation 
But were they keeping it secret because they were aware that this might become a political thing? Wasn't Dwayne Caneva, the, uh, the chief medical officer at the Department of Homeland Security, the initiator of Red Dawn? He was, but he, you know, a lot of the information that was being shared on there was information that, that the administration just didn't want to hear. Uh, they certainly didn't want public. And so there was a degree of— This is of, the Trump administration. This is the Trump administration. So there was a degree of—I mean, we all sort of remember those early months, uh, and particularly sort of even just before the pandemic really hit in February and March, and uh, the feeling, the strong feeling from the Trump administration that, you know, this is this is not going this is not going to happen. <laughs> We're not, you know, don't, don't worry. Um, and they when these folks were worrying uh, and their worry was, you know, in a way, a kind of a kind of subversive act as well, um, because they were not in line with with the rest of folks that were in government were not in line with what they were being told was going to be the uh, the line on on coronavirus. And they were reaching out to colleagues who they'd worked with in previous administrations, people in academia. And that's what the Red Red Dawn became. It became this nexus of experts who were willing to sort of free think um, in a way that might not have been certainly didn't seem to be allowed in those early months about what should be done with the hope i should add you know they they were talking amongst themselves but the idea was that there were people in this network people on this email chain who were say local public health officials and there were there were many of them who were turning to this group as their real source of information about how to proceed no. um yeah Senior officials, including uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Robert Redfield, Surgeon General Jerome Adams, were copied into the chain at least once. Yeah. Do we yeah. know whether they paid much attention? We don't really. I mean, there's one instance, um, there's, there's, there's one or two instances where they sort of chimed in with shock. Uh, but for the most part, they remained fairly quiet, and we don't know the degree to which they were. And, and the chain, I should say, you know, it had kind of various tributaries. <laughs> they were tributaries. There were there were there were kind of a few different offshoots where people would talk about particular aspects um, of what was going on. And there was sort of a core group who was emailing each other all the time. I mean, Eva Lee, who I mentioned, you know, would just send dozens of emails a day uh, with various pieces of information that she was collecting and um, and 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 you know and this is where it it goes back to Peresque and, and the 17th century they were sharing scientific information that maybe one, each one of them on their own couldn't have built up you know the the knowledge base they needed to really contend with the pandemic but between all of them uh, they, they were they were able to figure a lot of things out. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI, is Gal Beckerman, uh, the senior editor for books at The Atlantic. And uh, he was an editor at the New York Times Book Review uh, until very recently, yeah. uh, but he was there for six years. And we're talking about his new book, his latest book, which is called The Quiet Before, on the unexpected origins of radical ideas, published by Crown Publishing Penguin Random House. Um, to finish up with the uh, with Red Dawn, mm -hmm. as the public response became more politicized and less scientific, didn't the Red Dawn group become a refuge where participants could speak and, and think openly? Yeah, and uh, and they were doing some of the work that they felt the CDC should be doing or, or that people inside the CDC wanted to do. 
you know, certain basic recommendations like how many people should be allowed into a restaurant or should be allowed to sit around a table at a restaurant. And, you know, the, the Trump administration didn't want to actually say a number because they didn't want to, to have a, a negative effect on, on, on businesses. But this group was a group of science, scientifically minded people. And they said, actually, if you sort of look at contact tracing and what's possible, we should probably limit it to, you know, to this certain number. And, you know, that's, that's sort of the difference between what the government was able to put out and what they were able to do on, on their own. So we know most of those, the, the ideas that they had. Did, were they leaked or, uh, I mean, I know later the New York Times came to obtain the entire email chain right. and publish That's it. Right. Yeah, no, a lot of them did eventually come out. And like I said, you know, some of them, the, 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 the saddest emails I saw were from local public health officials. I think, you know, there were a number of them on there. I'm remembering for some reason this San Diego, you know, public health coordinator who was just pleading, saying, look, I, I, I I don't know what to do with this sort of these kind of general advisories that I'm getting from the CDC or from the government. I need to know what to tell people specifically to do. And he was drawing from the information that that he got there on Red Dawn. Washington State was another example where, you know, a few of the members in Red Dawn said they'd actually had conversations with officials in Washington state and in the biggest county that includes Seattle, where they said because they took their advice, they felt that the numbers were able to stay down and they didn't. If you remember, Washington state was where some of the first uh, cases were, but it never turned into sort of a New York City situation. And, you know, well, because many more people were coming from all over the world. to New Well, York that's City. true. I mean, there are there are a number of reasons why that didn't happen. But but the officials there told me and told members of you know, Red Dawn, that they felt that the the knowledge they were getting about what to do, they were some of the first to close schools, to close public events, including religious events, which got some pushback for, you know, and, and the sort of urgency that they were feeling and some of the concrete steps were things that they picked up directly from, from that network. Were there any repercussions? Um, there weren't any repercussions, but certainly, you know, at certain points, you know, people got fired uh, outside of this group. And so it was clear that you know, it wasn't a Galileo situation where they were going to get, you know, have to kneel before the Inquisition and be put in house arrest. But they certainly they certainly felt that there were there was a price to be paid as far as the administration was concerned from for openly, um, you know, going up against what the, the kind of tone that Trump and, uh, you know, that Trump wanted to set. You've also written about the Chartism movement in 19th century Britain. Uh, that dealt with universal suffrage, and did it have an impact in other parts of the world? Well, I mean, in, in th- that was a fascinating chapter. Uh, you know, it was, and what was interesting to me about Chartism was the fact that here you had a, a powerless group of people, the working class, you know, facing industrialization and all it was doing to their living conditions. I mean, truly, kind of horrid. Um, state of being really and and they didn't have any any way of uh they didn't have any political representation any way of expressing their desire for you know a different sort of life laws that might improve their working conditions because they literally didn't have the vote uh england in the 1830s maybe one in six men you know nobody was even talking about women then uh, had the right to vote you had to be you know landed um and own property the same issue that we face in this country 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, it, what was interesting to me was that without because they didn't have power, you know, the, there was this strange loophole since the 14th century in British law that allowed any citizen to petition the king and the parliament. And and but it had only been used in sort of, you know, minor sort of land disputes and, you know, not not anywhere near um kind of the scale that Chartism used it for, what they, that the innovation of that movement was to say, here is this loophole where we're allowed to petition, let's petition for the right to vote. And let's accumulate so many signatures that we won't be able to be ignored. And they, and was, they got millions of working people to sign the petition yeah, to present yeah, to yeah. the House of Commons. What were some of the reforms that were specified in the petition? Well, first of all, they wanted to be able to vote, uh, but they also wanted to, you know, limit, uh, put term limits on 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 members of the House of Commons, um, create a situation where it, it, to be a member of the House of Commons, you didn't have to own property, which was also the case. Um, there were a few, there were six different sort of bullet points, um, but the main one was, you know, open up the franchise. And what I found fascinating about the petition, just as a, as a form, as a medium, because that's sort of you know really what the book is about, is looking at the, these various forms of communication and the role that they played in these movements, was that it gave people involved an opportunity to create these little sites of conversation and discussion, and and recruit individuals who were you know this work these working class people to a into a constituency essentially, a constituency that didn't exist, really, as a constituency. So associations and canvassing groups were formed to gather signatures. That's right. It and women kind of weren't included in the demand to vote, but they were allowed to sign the petition. They were, and they were very involved with the petitioning effort, um, in spite of the fact that they didn't have, you know, directly to gain from it in terms of, of the right to vote. I think, um, you know, that was just, it, it was it was an in- extraordinary effort. You know, the first petition, the one that I focus on, because there ended up being three of them, three major ones, or monster ones, they were called at the time, too, was uh, they gathered over 1.25 million people uh it was it was the petition itself when it was rolled up was three miles long and um and this effort i mean just the you know going going door to door sneaking onto factory floors you know preparing the pages for people to sign and then actually you know engaging in this process of like a dialectic with with the people they wanted to get to sign on to the petition explaining to them why it made sense trying to get them past their fears you know for the person who was doing the convincing it kind of reinforced their own feelings of allegiance to the cause for the person coming along they felt a sense of identity and solidarity it was all extremely effective and sort of building the base for this movement and you know the, the, that that initial petition the one the, the first one in 1839 was quite literally laughed out of parliament when it was rolled into <laughs> onto into the floor of the house of commons despite the fact um, that it gathered that there were 1 million signatures yeah they didn't they didn't care i mean these weren't people who had any power i mean they were people who who were who this was the only shot they had you know uh, and but what it triggered was sort of another petition and another petition. And, you know, it took a few decades. Um, but I really see that 
moment. And I, you know, I think this is true of all the mo movements that I look at and the, and the kind of birth of radical ideas and radical change in any, in any of these instances is it's a long incremental process. I mean, that's the one thing that people I think need to sort of understand better sometimes it's about the things that we want to change in our world. Um, but if you look historically speaking, just from having kind of looked at this history, it, it definitely was a, that that changing of minds uh, that, that, that moving from something that people were imagining and hoping for until it was something that was inevitable uh, takes a lot of time and a lot of and a well, lot of effort. In much the same way that Pierre's letters opened up new channels of conversation for his correspondence, did the petition bring disparate groups of people together in a shared mission? It did, and and it, it did in a quite a dramatic way because the the the, the situation in England in the eight, in late eighteen thirties was pretty dire as far as the working class was concerned. What was the I role mean, of was, Fergus O'Connor in all of this? But finish so he, your, your yeah. point. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I just yeah. want to throw in his name. Yeah, no, Fergus O'Connor was the was was the great sort of organizer of the petition. He was this larger than life character uh, who who really became associated with with Chartism and, you know, was an incredible orator who went around the country giving, you know, hundreds of speeches and rallying people to it. He had a newspaper that was an incredibly important, played an important role in sort of building this sense of, na of identity among the Chartist groups. And they, you know, the, the, what what happened from the, the, the petition was that people sort of were able to channel their energy into something productive. Mm. You know, the, the, there was so much disgruntlement, so much unhappiness about life. You know, this was a time where uh, Frederick Engels did a famous study of Manchester and talked about the, the, the living conditions, you know, describing people living as worse than, worse than animals, worse than beasts. You know, he, 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 he really described a situation that seems abysmal uh, to read today. And, there was so much anger that it was either going to be channeled into something like this or into violence. You know, there was a sort of a sharp edge to this movement, and Fergus O'Connor certainly recognized it, that if they didn't have a productive way to channel their rage, that it was going to, you know, turn into a, an attempt at insurrection of some sort, which would fail, he knew, uh, because all violence was sort of monopolized by the state. You know, people had, you know, sticks and stones. Still true. So, yeah. yeah. Well, what, so <laughs> um, when did men without property finally earn the right to vote in Britain? And uh, how long after uh, did women finally gain the right to vote? Uh, it was in in the 1860s. There was another reform bill that finally opened it up in that way to men. And then for women, I don't think that it was really until you know the very early 20th century. Mm. You know, probably not not that long. Same as the U.S. Here, yeah, exactly. Well, do you see any parallels between the Chartism movement with today's struggle for voting rights in the U.S. When uh, Stacey Abrams wanted to register new voters in Georgia? Uh, how did she utilize the manuals that had helped her parents when they were trying yeah. to build up their yeah. Methodist church? Yeah. Well, it was, you know, it was fascinating. I mentioned that in the book and it was just, it was a day where I was driving around and I had just, I was working on this Chartist chapter and I heard Stacey Abrams come on and talk about how she had turned Georgia blue uh, or had helped to turn Georgia blue. And she described her parents who had arrived uh, in Georgia as Methodists and were trying to sort of set up the church there. And, and, you know, she had read their manuals, instruction manuals for how to do this. And it was all centered on this notion of you need to create these sites of intimate conversation. Uh, 
Uh, and so they sp spread out throughout the country and sort of be began to build up the church in that way. And she, she took this as a great example for, you know, for how she too could register. I think they registered about a million more people um, than the previous election. And, and sort of build up her grassroots movement. And, and it was all about, you know, in the way that the petition served a role for the Chartists, you know, the actual act of registering to vote became the kind of focal point mm -hmm. around which a conversation could happen, a sense of political participation that might not have existed before, a sense of responsibility and commitment and, and, and allegiance to, to a cause. All of that sort of happened at this very local, quiet, you know, one-to-one -one or small group level. But didn't Abrams and her organizers set up dozens of listening tours to encourage yes. potential voters to talk about their needs? Yeah, so no, no, that, that, that was, was a slow, big part of it steady too. work, yeah. and that yeah. was. Uh, but it 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 kind of paid off, but not totally. Uh, Georgia <laughs> has uh, had uh, a mixed history since uh, yes. on on voting rights. Yeah, I mean. Again, these things are just like it took 30 years for these things are incremental. Uh, and they, and there are, uh, you know, all the histories I looked at had this kind of three steps forward, two steps back mm. dynamic to them. But um, to me, it's not realistic to sort of look out at reality and not understand that that's part of how these things work, that having a sort of triumphalist idea of how progress happens, whatever progress you might be looking to achieve you know, can, can often end up being a debilitating thing in a way, because if it doesn't happen right away, if it doesn't, um, if it doesn't go viral in the way that you want it to, then, then that, that sort of disillusionment and disappointment can just lead to inaction as opposed to taking an attitude that, you know, there's, it's always going to be a struggle. And, um, and, and the important thing is to kind of figure out how to recruit more and more people to your worldview. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my conversation with Gal Beckerman, I want to let you know that anyone who signs up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $75 or more will receive a free copy of his book, The Quiet Before, on the unexpected origins of radical ideas. You can participate in this offer by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do it during this show. But don't forget to make that $75 contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And thank you very much. I was interested in uh, where art, the arts come into all of this. For example, um, Filippo Mar Marinetti's uh, Futurist Manifesto and what that led to uh, and the political aspect of it. And then later, uh, Samizdat. So uh, should we talk a bit about futurism, which um, sure. it was not only a, 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 an influential art movement, but also had a political side? 
Yeah, um, those manifestos are fascinating. You know, they basically in the in, in yeah, the, the, this group of sort of avant-garde artists in the 1910s uh, decided that you know they wanted they were not happy with uh, with Italian society. They had a sense of kind of being stuck and wanting to embrace what they saw as the future of uh, kind of a techno technologically speaking in terms of art uh, art that would sort of break down established structures and genres and in, in very dramatic ways. What was happening uh, in the, re the art was changing in other parts of the world. Absolutely. You had cubism absolutely. in France, for example. Yeah, yeah no, Fran and France was in fact sort of a big influence on a lot of their thinking. I mean, it, it even influenced their, who, what, what side they were uh uh, you know, aligned with during, <laughs> during World War One, um, because France felt like the most kind of modernist, po kind of post uh, forward thinking, uh, more forward thinking than, than Germany and Austria. Um, but they they sort of re Marinetti as, as the leader of this movement, but then it br brought in a lot of uh, the most famous uh, Italian artists at the time began to use manifestos, uh, another medium as a way to express their desires for how to change how they wanted to change first just the art scene but eventually you know the world <laughs> they, they, they got uh, very and, political and they uh, many of them allied themselves with the fascist movement absolutely and uh and they they thirsted for war i think it's safe to say they began to believe that war was the only way that they could remake the world in the way that they wanted, and uh, and that you know um, the, the the Marinetti has a line where he says war is the best hygiene, um, in that it would create new men, it would create a new sort of society. It sounds like um, some of the things we're hearing today from from the right wing groups in the United States. <laughs> sure, you know they they definitely are precursors to a lot of what we you know came came to see later on. You know, I mean, re reading the way they talk the flip way that they talked about war you know after knowing what happened actually in world war one and then of course world war two is kind of horrifying but the to them it was wars. it was a it was a kind of a form of expression that could uh raise society because they it raised their 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 current um you know the, their current reality which is what they wanted for everything um you know they would they, they wanted to destroy cities like florence and venice and sort of mm. build large modernist uh, you know skyscrapers in their place. Oh my um, God, Florence and yeah. Venice. <laughs> yeah, but that that was the two of the most wonderful was, places in the world. I know, I know, but that was that was the attitude, and um, you know, it, it it the manifestos gave them a chance to sort of dream aloud. You know, that chapter I look at the role the manifestos had in in a, in. In, in allowing them to imagine, you know, imagine in sort of bombastic, crazy ways um, what they would do differently. And there was a dialectic sort of between the manifestos. It was always groups of people that would write them, or most mostly it was groups of people that would write them. And then there would be sort of responses to them or people would play off of them. Um, there were there were hundreds of these and they sort of became in a strange way, you know, at one level they are a loud declaration, right? Because that's that's the form a manifesto takes is we we want to change the world in this way uh, but they also were a way for this movement 
which was trying to kind of figure out what it was and what it wanted. And eventually, as you said, sort of landed in uh, in bed with 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 fascism and Mussolini. Um, but it was a way for it to sort of refine its ideology. But there was um, also a futurist movement in pre-revolutionary Russia, which eventually was, allied itself with Lenin. But were they right. also issuing manifestos? Were they yeah. similar in many ways, except that they moved in the opposite direction politically? Yes, very much so. And the manifestos, the manifesto itself was sort of a neutral form, right? But it, but it, but each of these groups, each of these groups started with a desire to remake things, to 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 be re- revolutionary in their in 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 their desires and in their sort of program uh, for for their political program. But um, but it took it took different directions, obviously. And um, yeah, go ahead. No, I you know what was interesting for me in that chapter was I. I focused on Mina Loy, who was a was an artist who sort of allied herself. There weren't very many women, almost none at all, who were part of this futurist circle, but she became she was a she was a visual artist uh, who was living in Florence, had a kind of a complicated situation and background, was British in origin, um, and you know she really was attracted to the parts of their vision that were about tearing down the old. She didn't like their ideas for what they wanted to do in its place. But but for her, especially as a woman, as a woman with kind of proto-feminist uh, feelings and uh, and it, she, she wanted to, to she, she liked the idea of a philosophy, of a way of being as a kind of an art movement and then a political movement that had as its objective to tear down what was. And she wrote her own manifesto. She wrote a feminist manifesto. She wrote two two of them, in fact, trying to sort of edge her way into this movement and also sort of pull it in her direction, you know, so away from let's make war <laughs> to let's actually, you know, attack the the old stereotypes of what a woman should do and can do, um, what a man should do and can do. Let, let's kind of turn it in that direction. Like her, her, her attempt her the dialectic she was trying to impose on futurism through her manifesto was about making it uh, be sort of a personal liberation and um you know she didn't succeed in that obviously the 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 there was there was too overpowering sort of the the pull towards war and what the other futurists wanted but it was interesting to me that the manifestos even offered her somebody who was essentially kind of disgusted with that their bigger project still offered her something very uh, liberating and revolutionary. In, in its attempts to com- control communication, didn't the Soviet Union limit access to typewriters at, for a certain point in time? They did, and they had this very, uh, you know, very intricate system for tracking uh, typewriters. So they would uh, each typewriters would have some kind of identifying signature um, that could then be tracked down uh, in in the typeset of, of, of the typewriter. So what is Samizdat? Uh, doesn't it translate as self-publishing? Is that what happened? Yeah. Um, Was it considered some, a form of dissident activity, even though we get something like uh, Boris Pasternak's 1957 yeah. novel, Dr. Zhivago? Well, it, I mean, it was dissident in, in its context because Samizdat, by, by, very, by its very nature, 
is writing that is not allowed. It's self-published because it cannot be published otherwise. It can't be published. It would not be published by the state, which obviously controlled all of publishing in the Soviet Union. So this was was any sort of writing that had to circulate in the underground for you know for any number of reasons, and it included writing you know like Pasternak, you know, just writing that was not allowed. It included work like 1984, Orwell's 1984 that was translated from the West, books that were not permitted in the Soviet Union. And, and this is where I, my fascination lie with, with Sami's dot, it also involved creating these elaborate journals, journals of writing, of kind of collaborative writing that were, in the case that I looked at, sort of tracking the reality of Soviet dissidents and and, and subversion uh, in, in their society in a way that would sort of make them feel like they could participate in the, something. They created something like a, like, a, like a shadow civil society through the Sami's dot because they were witnessing the things that were happening to them and they were writing them down and trying to kind of create a testament to, to, to their reality. Wasn't even poetry seen as anti-Soviet? Weren't poets and editors of poetry magazines with no political content routinely arrested and sent to prison camps? Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, if the poetry had any kind of, if the poetry had, had any kind of, of um, a political dimension to it, or even was sort of personal in the way that felt like it was not in line with the dominant Soviet aesthetic, uh, it, it could get you in trouble. And so, so poetry is some, some of the first pieces of writing that circulated in Samizdat form. But then, you know, as, you know, in, into the 19, late 1960s and 1970s, this is kind of a neo-Stalinist mood took over the Soviet Union with, the, with Brezhnev's ascension to power. Uh, the dissidents themselves, the ones who had just been wanting to create art, uh, began to be uh, persecuted in very harsh ways, ways that they had not been really since the time of Stalin, although nobody was getting killed, you know. In those, well, but the, they the, were the, poet, Stalin. The, the poet Natalia Gobinevskaya mm -hmm. uh, was arrested and put in a psychiatric hospital. Yeah, no, this, the, she she was the uh, the editor of the Chronicle of Current Events. What was right. What was that? So the the Chronicle of Current Events is what I'm sort of leading up to, which is that that was started in 1968 and. As as the thaw, what was known as the thaw, with the period after Stalin's death came to an end, and the repressions began again, and people were sent to prison camps and locked up for no reason in psychiatric institutions and followed, and it became a much more repressive situation for any free-thinking person in the Soviet Union. This community of dissidents decided that they needed to find a way to sort of catalog what was happening to them, um, and they they came up with this idea, and Natalia Gorbanevskaya was the first editor, although there would be many successive editors as, as they, because they came to be arrested one after the other, that would gather together just these bits of information. And it was, it, this was written, in a, it was written in a very sparse sort of, um, you know, what we might think of as kind of a newspaper, uh, attempt at objectivity kind of newspaper style, uh, just uh, the facts uh, of who was being arrested, who was sent to a prison camp, what the situation in a prison camp was. Um, and it, it, it was turned into an almost sort of a pastiche of all of these facts uh, about their lives and eventually became a repository for people who were witnessing 
uh, violations of you know what we would think of as civil rights or human rights that were known as civil rights and human rights even back then, but just were not sort of respected in the same way by the Soviet state. People would witnessing those would write down what they had seen on a piece of paper and pass it to the person who had given them their last issue of the Chronicle of Current Events. The, the, the journal circulated hand to hand. And then that person would hand it to the next person, hand it to the next person until it got back to the editor in Moscow, in this case, uh, uh, Natalia Gorbanevskaya, who would then print it in the next issue of the Chronicle. So it became this sort of network that spread out throughout eventually the entire Soviet Union where people could, um, you know, somebody witnessed a a teacher living, you know, who's working in a uh, rural school who saw a colleague fired because he was teaching a forbidden book or a forbidden book was seen in his classroom. That teacher would take the risky step of writing down this, the facts of, of the case on a piece of paper and then passing it along. And then the next issue of the Chronicle would appear and the name and all the information would be in there. So, you know, and they, they came to even understand the kind of clinical language they were using as being subversive in itself because it was so contrary to what they were seeing in, you know, Soviet newspapers, you know, Pravda and Izvestia were famously this sort of Potemkin, you know, uh, you know, just filled with exaggerations and outright lies about, you know, ev- everything in Soviet society. And so for them, dissidence was, you know, having a completely dispassionate, completely flat uh, affect, you know, just listing. They even did corrections. They would do that. That was that was their their form of dissidence. They said, you know, they'd be in the next issue would say, sorry, we misspelled the name of somebody in the issue before we need to clear the record, you know. Um, and and that was very important to them, given given the fact that they were living in a society where they felt that the, the biggest concern, the biggest persecution they felt was the kind of double think that they had to engage in, that there was a sort of a public reality and, the, and then there were the things they whispered to, amongst themselves. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Gal Beckerman. Uh, his latest book, The Quiet Before, on the unexpected origins of radical ideas, published by Crown Publishing Penguin Random House. You... Um, you contrast Samizdat with zines. Were the first zines mm-hmm. a way for science fiction fans to share their interests? And what did they look like? Uh, they look like maybe what people, I mean, I don't, so, you know, it's funny when I talk to younger audience and I, uh, audiences and I mention zines, people sometimes don't know what it is I'm talking about because they were so completely obliterated by the internet. But this was also self-publishing. In fact, Samizdat was sort of seen as a precursor in some ways to this, um, self-consciously seen as a precursor. And, you know, people would use photocopy machine, you know, type out little magazines, use photocopy machines and staplers, uh, you know, fold, fold over a page, uh, you know, so that it created sort of a booklet and, um, and, and circulate sort of among small communities of interest, um, their, their zines. So it began Uh, with science fiction, but then it really got connected with the punk music scene, and you mm-hmm. focus on young women creating their own zines. That's right. So it, it got taken up by by the punk subculture, I think because of its kind of DIY quality. You know, this was sort of off the grid, people doing their own thing. Uh, that was very much the attitude against the mainstream. And that was very much sort of the, the, the punk attitude and, and ethos. Uh, 
but there were a group of women, very young women, you know, in their teens and early 20s in the in the 1990s, early 1990s, who began to feel that a kind of, first of all, pushed out by the punk scene itself, which had become a lot more sort of hyper masculine and, you know, the mosh pit uh, kind of uh, reality of being part of it. And they, they didn't feel like it spoke to them anymore. And so they wanted to kind of a, they wanted a way to speak back to it. Uh, and so they used the what was the communications tool at the time in the punk underground, which was zines themselves. But then it took on a bigger significance because a lot of these women also felt that the wider culture didn't speak to their concerns, didn't speak to the realities and specifically of being a girl uh, of of of, you know, sexual abuse, of eating disorders, uh, of of the problems of being of, of image and you know they they would open up the glossy magazines of the time and only see this sort of airbrushed reality of what it meant to be a girl and a woman and so the zines became their way to channel a different sort of spirit of you know this is this is really what it's like these are our real concerns and it had almost a kind of a most of them had a very confessional sort of aspect to them um, well then along came the social media and that uh allowed today's groups to mobilize with tremendous speed and unprecedented scale, although right. uh, you point out that there are problems there as well. Could Occupy Wall Street or the Black Lives Matter movement have been as influential without Facebook and Twitter and social media in general? I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question because, you know, what does it mean to be influential? Yes, they gained a lot of visibility. They gained a lot of attention for their the concepts that they were trying to introduce, you know, income inequality or, you know, the persistence of racism. But, and, and that, and those are, I, I would never uh, deny <laughs> that those are incredibly important ideas that they were able to get into the bloodstream, so to speak, because of the use of, of social media and the sort of enormous megaphones that they provide people. But the question I would ask and the question that really this, the book asks is, you know, shouldn't there also be some kind of corollary place where people can quietly figure out a sort of larger strategy and understand how to change things on the ground as opposed to just changing the atmosphere? And well, what I mean, yeah, go ahead. Well, it, it, what happens now is things move much quicker than they did in the old days when stuff was sent through the mail or people were writing manifestos. Well, that's right. And, and as a result, does, does that mean that they burn out more quickly? I mean, I think so. I mean, I think that's been my experience of the last 10, 15 years, observing these movements that have very, very lofty and important and, and worthy objectives of changing something structural about about our reality of, of upending a status quo and finding that after sort of the crowds dissipate, they don't have the, the the tools to actually move forward. And often that means, you know, doing those things we talked about before, you know, like, you know, uh, going on the ground, organizing, understanding people's real needs, and then adjusting your own strategy to those needs. All of those things, you know, need to happen off of those large platforms. And my worry is that what we've seen over the last 10, 15 years is an over-reliance on, on the megaphone. But don't bad ideas also bloom in the privacy of small groups? Can't sure. privacy protect pedophiles and hate groups from discovery? 
Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, there's but, a positive side and a negative side to all. Yes, of yes. I mean, these are tools, and tools can, you know, a hammer can be used to build a house, and it can be used to tear one down. You know, it's it it, it the tools are neutral. The problem that I see is that we've come to associate the values of sort of seclusion and a little bit of privacy and and kind of the small huddled conversation only with the child pornographers and the you know ISIS recruits or whatever that we don't we we've we've vilified uh so much that mode of conversation the let's sit around a table and figure something out and think that it only is it works towards you know nefarious ends that we've lost an important mode that, that I think activists need to sort of recapture if they want those moments, those viral moments to, 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 to actually turn into concrete change. We don't hear about Black Lives Matter as much today as we did just a few years ago. And you I mean, have we, about a minute to answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, I, I mean, one of the things I discovered working on this book is there are a lot of very uh, smart and capable organizers and activists on the ground who have learned an enormous amount the Black Lives Matter activists had over the last few years of seeing these booms and busts. And, you know, they are doing a different sort of work than the work that might catch our attention in a big public way. But a lot of the, a lot of the, the people who, you know, are really committed to turning this into more than just a viral moment um, are, you know, they're, they're trying to get elected to city councils <laughs> and they're, they're going door to door and they're doing things like petitioning and canvassing. And, and that's really, I think, the work that actually makes long term change happen. Uh, Gal Beckerman is a senior editor for books at The Atlantic. He was an editor at The New York Times Book Review for six years, uh, also served as opinion editor at The Forward. Uh, and a staff editor and writer at the Columbia Journalism Review. Uh, his uh, book, first book, When They Come For Us, Will Be Gone, won two major book awards and was chosen as a book of the year by The New Yorker and The Washington Post. And my great thanks to him for being our guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large. Thank you so much, Leonard. I really appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Our great thanks to contributing producer Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, the Apple channel, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. We need your help to help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information that you, you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Quiet Before on the Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideas by Gal Beckerman. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. 
or you might consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20 a month, whatever you're comfortable with. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at large, um, why not let us know you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Thursday when Tim Kaine will discuss his new book, The Immigrant Superpower. We'll see you then.